I'm thankful in many ways that it's a smaller group. Our pastors and staff are in Pennsylvania for the Voice of the Prophets conference, and I'm thankful it's a small group because tonight what you're going to see is God stretch me in new ways. And I basically um, learned how to teach Bible studies up on this stage. I think it's been about four years now I've been teaching. The first time I was so nervous, I was nauseous, like sat on the front row, nauseous. It was, it was bad. But since then, I've grown a lot, and I've grown in confidence in the Lord, and I've learned how to prepare my heart by saying, Jesus, if you don't show up, I'm in deep, deep trouble. So I, I'm confident that God will show up, but I've learned to, pr- to position my heart in humility and to ask him by his mercy to give me the words, but it's not about me. It's about Holy Spirit speaking through me because he has something for you to know. He has something for you to know tonight. And our topic tonight is salvation. And that's a big word. It comprises many things. And we're going to look at at five elements. And this um, study came out of me studying Colossians. I'll read the verse to you in just a minute. But I was reading this Holman New Testament commentary on a passage in Colossians. And so I credit Max Anders, who's the author of this, with these five metaphors that you're going to learn tonight about salvation. So that part was not my original um, content. And I do want to say my preparation for this has been very different than other Bible studies I've taught. I've always taught basically line upon line out of the Bible, you know, a chapter at a time, Philippians chapter 1 this week and Philippians chapter 2 this week. And this message is more topical. It's looking at the topic of salvation. And usually I spend nine months preparing, and this one I had about 10 days. So again, Holy Spirit is stretching me and teaching me not to be so much in control by having every word written down but just learning that I've hidden his word in my heart for over 25 years, and it's in there. (laughs) just need to step away from the notes and say, oh, Jesus, speak through me. And that's very hard for me because I like everything just so. I don't ever want to be in a position where somebody has a question and I don't have the answer. So I'm growing. So tonight you're going to see me grow. You see me, I'm down on the floor. That's different, doing things differently. So first, let's jump into a few different words. First of all, you've probably heard the word sozo. That's the the Greek word that means to save. It also means to heal and deliver, but that's the main word that means to save. Soteria is the Greek word for salvation. And what we're looking at tonight is soteriology. So it's the study of the doctrine of salvation, and that comprises, again, many things, and we're just looking at five specific elements of it. I could talk about sanctification and propitiation, and we could, we could probably make this an eight-week-long Bible study, but we're just going to look at it briefly tonight. So I do have some things on the slides, and I'll also refer to your handout and try to tell you what's where so you'll know how to follow along with me. So on your handout, it says soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. It helps us to understand the doctrines of redemption, justification, sanctification, propitiation, and the substitutionary atonement. So why do we study this? Over and over, as I looked at these scriptures, I kept seeing, but God. It says, we were blank, all of these horrible things, but God. And that's what we're going to see tonight is that our salvation is because God chose to gift us with eternal life, to gift us with a relationship with him, to gift us with knowledge of him and his truth. And it's always by grace and by faith, and through Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn that, and that's what we're going to see tonight. So let's look at these five metaphors of salvation, these five elements of your salvation that you really need to know. Forgiveness, the metaphor is the bank. Redemption, it's the marketplace. Reconciliation is the battlefield. Justification is the courtroom, and adoption is the home. 
And it took me a few weeks, but after many weeks of going over these in my head, I was finally able to rattle them off, usually at least four. <laughs> I always forgot justification. But these are going to give you pictures in your mind of what this really looks like in a way that we can relate to as humans on this earth. And why study this? Max Anders says, each of these metaphors, like the many sides of a radiant diamond, add to the beauty and glory of the believer's salvation. So this message tonight, it's going to make God look really great. This is not going to be a message of you need to do this, 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 and this. This is a message of encouragement to you, helping you to understand more of what Jesus did for you, helping you to understand your identity and not to continue living the way you formerly thought about yourself. Because we often carry guilt and shame and condemnation into our relationship with Jesus. And this message tonight is going to help you with that. So let's start with Colossians 1. 21 and 22, and this is the passage that inspired this. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil, evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So what we were formerly... We were debtors. We were slaves to sin. We were enemies of God. We were sinful. And we were orphans. So here's these metaphors that we're talking about. Debtors, the bank. Slaves to sin, the marketplace. Enemies, a battlefield. Sinful. Let's see if I can remember that one. Oh, that's, um, help me, the courtroom. <laughs> I always forget justification. Orphans. It's the home, adoption. So let's jump into the first one, forgiveness. And these words are um, straight out of his book. The ones that are, that are in bold are quotes from, um, from Max Anders. Forgiveness, the bank. The sinner stands before God in debt, and the debt, having been paid by another, is canceled. So I had to go through some records today because I wanted to find something to show you. And in this folder, there's a note. And this note says that my home that I live in, 1102 Milheim Court, does not belong to me. It belongs to the bank. <laughs> because right now, I owe a debt. We borrowed money to buy our home. I owe a debt to the bank. If I don't pay back, I read, the, I read through it again today, if I don't pay off the debt, the payments, the note, the bank can come and take my home. So I think we can all relate to debt because that is somewhat how our culture functions right now. We have mortgages and we have car payments. We have credit card debt. Many people come out of college with student loans. So we can all understand a debt to the bank. So how does this relate to God? We have a spiritual debt. And this spiritual debt began way back in the garden when Adam sinned. Adam and Eve sinned, and so we became, we, we inherited a sin problem. And what that means is our nature, our tendency is to sin. Now, I know some people will say, I'm not a sinner, I'm, not a, I'm a saint, and I'm not, I'm not going to go there. But we do have a tendency to sin. We all have a tendency to sin. Psalm 52, 2-3, says, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to say, see if there are anyone who understands, who seek after God. Every one of them is turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So there's no one who does good. And what you'll see on your handout, the scriptures that I haven't listed out for you, I've given you the cross-references so you can look those up later. 
Psalm 133 through 4a. It says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? That just makes me want to get on my knees right now. Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? No one. But the good news, it says, but with you there is forgiveness. Well, what about the New Testament? I was involved with a college ministry. That's how I got saved at NC State. And then we were taught evangelism with the Romans Road. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What that means is, is what we are paid for our sin is death. That is what we deserve. And as many of you know, certain sins lead to death. That is a physical, a physical reality of certain sins. But spiritually, the wages, what we owe for our sin is death. We've accumulated a payment or a consequence of sin. That is the debt that we could never repay. That is the note that we could never repay. There's nothing we could ever do to pay that debt of death from our sin. But there's good news. This is on your handout, Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And I love this Greek word, forgiveness. It means to release from bondage or imprisonment. It's forgiveness or pardon of sins. It's letting them go as if they were never committed. And what I really love is the root word means to send away. Forgiveness is to send away your sins. They don't just follow you. My past and all my past mistakes and failures, they don't follow me because they've been sent away. What follows me is surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life from Psalm 23. In the Jewish faith, Yom Kippur is the greatest holy day. And on that date, in ancient Israel, the high priest would confess the sins of the nation of Israel over a goat, symbolically laying the sins of Israel on the head of that goat. And then someone would lead that goat into the wilderness where he could never find its way back. The sins were sent away, and they were never able to find a way back. And that is what forgiveness is. Um, the commentator Warren Wearsby says, Christ died to carry our sins so that they might never have to be seen again. So in our minds, we often see our sins over and over. I have some images of my sin that are very hard to forget, even though some of that is 30 years old, like from when I was 15 years old. But Jesus doesn't see that anymore. It's gone. It's hard for me to lose some of the images, but I don't have to live under the condemnation of it or the guilt and the shame of it because Jesus took my sins away. They were sent away. As far as the east, Psalm 103:12. as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They've been sent away. So the good news is those sins can never return. This, oh, I would just love to, I should have brought, I should have copied the note so I could pick it up and rip it in half and say there's no longer a debt. We no longer owe a debt to God for our sins. We no longer have to pay the penalty, which is death, because Jesus paid it for us. Now, if anybody wants to, they can call my bank and pay this note for me. <laughs> That's a physical example, and that happens. People pay each other's debts. That's what we want, right? God cancels debts. Greg? Oh, there it is. Paid. Canceled. He paid our debt. 
So the next verse, I read to you Romans 6, 23, the first part, for the wages of sin is death, but. We're going to see a couple key buts tonight in Scripture, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So anytime I can teach about grace, I always want to take that opportunity because that's one of my favorite concepts in all of my faith is grace. So what is grace? It says the free gift of God. What does this free gift mean? And this is on your handout, Ephesians 2, and I've chosen verses 4 through 5 and 8 and 9. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When I study scripture and I see something repeated, that's always important. And in that passage, twice it says verbatim, it is by grace you have been saved. That is what the free gift is. My favorite definition of grace is, again, by Warren Wearsby. I I study him a lot as I study Paul's epistles. But he says it's the kindness of God towards undeserving people. We are all undeserving people because we all have sinned, because we have that sin nature. But it's the kindness of God towards us. Sometimes you wonder, people wonder, you know, well, I'm a good person. But if you looked in the mirror and you thought you looked really good, that might be vanity. If you were like me, shopping on Amazon today, seeing all these things you wanted and you started to covet, well, that might be greed. If you drove here tonight and got angry, well, (laughs) and I've been, um, gosh, I want to speak carefully here. I've been a little confused lately by some of the podcasts that I'm listening to, Christian podcasts, and they're using cuss words. Like I understand, you know, when you lock yourself out of the house or somebody cuts you off in traffic, but for a Christian to just cuss on Christian podcasts, I'm not understanding that. I just, I don't know. That freedom in Christ is beyond where God has me living at the moment. But we all have a sinful nature, but grace is God's kindness to us, even though we might have chewed somebody out on our way here as we were driving. God still got us here. That's his grace. It's his kindness towards us, even now as believers, when we often don't deserve it. So a quote out of this Max Anders book, grace means unmerited favor or undeserved kindness. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, He gives us heaven when we deserve hell. He grants us forgiveness when we deserve to be forgotten. He offers us life when we deserve death. It's all grace. None of the good things we receive from God are earned. So we can't earn forgiveness, but it's only by grace. Many years ago, Brian and I moved here to help start a church. And the pastor of the church had a big vision in a little pocketbook. And so we took out some ads in the newspaper and with the radio station that we weren't able to pay. And eventually the church folded, and guess who was the church church treasurer? It was me. (laughs) I held the checkbook without a lot of money, and we had maybe $10,000 in debt. There was a lot of debt. But WWIL our local radio station, they forgave their debt. I believe it was, it was about $2,000, maybe over $2,000. But they forgave that debt. That's grace. They canceled that debt. So you're forgiven. The debt of your sin is canceled. Because of the pl- precious blood of Jesus, you're no longer under a curse and will suffer God's wrath but your sins are forgiven. The blood of Jesus paid the debt that you could never pay. And that's good news. That's the gospel. This is all the gospel. 
So let's move on to the next metaphor. Greg, I'm having a hard time controlling this on my phone. Can you advance me? Redemption, the marketplace. The sinner stands before God as a slave, but God grants freedom by payment of a ransom. I've never heard, I'm sorry, I've never sold anything at a pawn shop, but I've heard stories of people selling precious pieces of family heirloom jewelry and then someone else going and paying the price to buy it back. And that's a picture of redemption. It was redeemed. I wonder if Adam and Eve wished they could buy back their innocence. As soon as they were naked and afraid and ashamed in the garden, I bet they wished they could buy back that relationship with God and the innocence that they had before they sinned. And thanks to Adam and Eve, we're born slaves to sin. And I've listed before some of the ways that we sin. It's our nature. Slaves to sin. But let's look at this word redemption. This makes my heart race. It's such a beautiful word. It means to be purchased from the slave market of sin. Totally free never to be sold again, a releasing by the payment of a ransom. So it's to buy back, not in order to hold in slavery, but with the purpose to set free, buying a slave back in order to set them free. 1 Corinthians 6.20a says, For you have been bought with a price. And what is that price? It's the blood of Jesus. So in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there were animal sacrifices that were made to pay or atone for the sins of the people. But that blood could never completely take away their sin. That's why they had to go back and sacrifice again and again and again. If you want to learn more about that, read the book of Hebrews. It'll tell you all about it. But Jesus' blood was able to be one sacrifice for all sin, for all time. I wish I had the reference, but it's in Hebrews. I call it the one, four, four. One sacrifice for all sin, all your past sin, today's sin, all your sin in the future, for all sin, for all time. So all the sin from your whole life, Jesus one sacrifice. His blood was sufficient to pay for your sin. The animal sacrifices, they were insufficient. But Jesus' blood is enough. It took the blood of a perfect, holy, sinless sacrifice to atone for our sins. So some cross-references. Again, we've heard this verse before, Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. That little phrase there at the end, grace and lavished, it basically means he's graced us with grace. It's double grace. It's twice a gift that we don't deserve. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the ple- precious blood. I keep getting that, I keep mixing those two words up. Precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So you were born a slave to sin, but you have been purchased back out of sin by the precious blood of Jesus. He has bought you back. He has bought you back. So yes, we do have a tendency to sin, but we are no longer slaves to it. If I'm driving down the road and I see a beautiful man in the car next to me, I can look straight ahead. And think about him. 
and never have to look again. I always say the first look is free, but the second look is sin. That's kind of Lisa's rule for herself. So I can look the first time, but then I don't have to look again because I'm no longer a slave to sin. Now, my flesh might want to, but I'm not a slave to that. So we can have mastery through Holy Spirit by the power of Jesus living in us. We can have mastery over those areas where we are prone to sin. And sometimes it's a battle. And sometimes we have to enlist other people to help us for accountability or to pray for us. Sometimes we go to prayer ministry here at Global River. When it gets really bad, we bring in the pastors and people who are skilled at helping us to get free. But we're no longer slaves because we've been bought back. So I have something that I want to read to you. Gregory, are you ready? And this is something that I wrote um, two years ago as I was studying redemption, studying that Greek word. It's called the slave marketplace. The day was dark and gloomy as Jesus wandered the city streets. His heart was set on a mission, but he wasn't quite sure yet of the outcome. He was fully God, but also fully man. So some things were still hidden from him, but he knew the Holy Spirit was propelling him to find something or someone. He headed to the market area, and as he drew nearer, he could begin to hear the shouts. It was a place of market, a place of trade, where one exchanged one's valuables for another person's goods. It was a place where food and blankets and fine linens were sold. But as Jesus drew nearer, he saw that the market was also darker and more sinister at one end. It was also a market for people, slaves. Men and women of flesh and bone sold into servitude for their debts and their crimes. It was then that he saw her. He could see that at one time she was young and lovely, but today she was grimy and disheveled. She was bound by the wrists and feet by heavy rope that had no hope of being untied. She probably had once struggled against her bonds, but as he looked at her, he saw that her hope had long fled her heart and despair had settled in. She sat there in defeat, and all around her were shouts of condemnation. You dirty sinner, you deserve the punishment you're going to get. You filthy, nasty woman. You are a reproach upon humanity. You outcast. You should be left to die. The market was crowded, but Jesus was able to push his way through the mass of humanity to her. She was surrounded by other men and women on the slave cart, people equally as decrepit as she was. He caught her eye, and when she saw the compassion in his eyes, she gave him a tremulous smile. No one had looked at her like a real person in a long time. Woman, why are you here on the slave cart, ready to be sold at the slave market? Why are you not at home with your husband and children? She looked down at the ground in shame and said in defeat, Sin, sir, my sin, it has ensnared me and I can't escape from it. It has captured me broken my will, and stolen all of my hope. She looked at him, her face full of guilt, and she continued, I'm a sinner, sir. It's what I am. It's what I've always been, and it's what I will always be. And as a sinner, I deserve punishment. I deserve to pay for my sin for the rest of my life. Jesus contemplated her situation for a few moments. He wanted to flee that place of desperation and angst, but the Holy Spirit told him to stay, to look past the stench and shame of this sinful woman and to search for what lay beneath her gritty exterior. As Jesus looked into her eyes, he could see that there was once a joy there. There was once creativity and love and a desire to care for others. In fact, what he saw inside of her drew his admiration, and he felt proud of who she had once been, who she was created to be. 
As he continued to gaze at her, his view of her changed. Her torn clothing, matted hair, and feral smell began to fade away. As he continued to behold the beauty of her face, he began to see not her past, but her future. He saw her in a new dress, fresh and colorful. He began to see her matted hair and broken body washed clean from the filth of sin. He was able to smell her, and she smelled of purity. Not only did he see her as clean and pure, but he saw her doing good works. He saw her future potential. Go ahead. He said boldly. He felt a sudden urgency to do something, something crazy, and that made no sense. But he felt compelled by the vision of the woman's future. The clean woman she could be once more, if only given a second chance. Q. Woman. He said again commanding her eyes to rise to meet his. As she looked into his eyes, longing for his help, he said the very words that her battered, weary soul hoped to hear. I will take your place. She longed for his help, but resisted him. No, sir, no, you cannot, you must not. You are honored in this city. You are a teacher. You have not created a mess of your life like I have. No, sir, absolutely not. I have made my bed, and I must lie in it. I am the one who has sinned, and I must suffer the consequences of my bad choices. I alone must pay. But even as she tried to reason with him, he reached up and began to undo her bonds. They were tight and had chafed against her wrist, but he gingerly loosed them. And as he did so, the weight of what he was doing began to settle on him. The magnitude of his decision hit him, but he did not stop. After he loosed her bonds, he reached up for her, picked her up by the waist, and lowered her from the cart. Woman. He said as he looked deep into her eyes. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. You are free now, so go, and don't look back. Tears streamed down her face as she realized what was happening. There, in the slave market, the place of her bondage, shame, and despair, she was being set free. This man was taking her place and paying for her sins, thus buying her freedom. This man was redeeming her from her sin. She clung to the man, words of utter gratitude flowing from her heart. Thank you, sir. I didn't think I would ever escape from the slavery of sin, but I am now free. I will always remember what you have done for me. He removed her hands from him and told her once again to go. She turned to go, moving slowly at first, but as she began to walk away from the market, she felt a confidence rising within her. She felt her purpose for living slowly begin to return. She had hope. Did she even feel joy? Even though she was still dirty on the outside, she felt clean on the inside. She felt restored. Her dirty past was replaced by her promising future. And as she left behind the clamor and darkness of the slave market, she turned back to look at the place of her redemption one more time. And there sat Jesus in her place. There sat Jesus in her place. That is redemption. It's the marketplace. It's where he took our place, he took the bonds of the debt that we couldn't pay, and he paid it for us. He was a sacrifice for us. Praise the Lord. So let's move on. To the next metaphor, which is the battlefield. Greg, can you advance my slide for me? 
the battlefield. This is reconciliation. The sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend when God makes peace. So about four years ago, it was a bad year. There was a, it was a year that I had many breaches in my relationships, both in my friendships and within my family. And you know, anytime that there's hurt, we often let that turn into bitterness, unforgiveness, and then we can be begin seeing those people who have hurt us as our enemies. Suddenly it's us against them. It's hard to forgive, and these wedges of bitterness are built between people. And even looking beyond ourselves, look at our nation. We've been in a war against ISIS for years. And just recently, the last extremist fighters from Syria were ousted. But I want you to get a picture of a battlefield. And that is where part of our redemption to, to Christ through Christ takes place because before God we're enemies, we were enemies, but we have become friends. Why is there a breach or a wedge between us and God? Gregory, if you'll go to the next slide. It's because of sin. Isaiah 50, does this sound, is this starting to <laughs> make sense? Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. Isaiah 59.2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So how can we be reconciled back to God if we have a sin problem? Um, through repentance, yeah, and we're going to, we're going to, there's a lot of right answers. But we're going to look, if you'll turn with me to Romans 5. Through repentance, through faith, there's a lot of right answers, John. But that's usually the first step, is to repent. Romans 5, we're going to start with verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But... God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Paul says that before this reconciliation, we were powerless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies, we were under God's wrath. But here again is another significant B-U-T, but Romans 5a, and this is on your handout, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a quote, I think it's from all of my, all of my commentaries run together. Anyway, it was commentary. <laughs> and it said, he saw what I had done. He saw who I was and he saw what I had done, but he died for me anyway. Anyway, he saw who I was, he saw what I had done. That's why we were still sinners. And it's, my brain can't contain that, but while we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us anyway. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 is another cross-reference about reconciliation. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Again, tearing up that note, that debt. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So reconciliation involves a change in the status of your relationship. 
And with all of those people that I had rough times with back in 2015, I believe it was, we did what, um, what Pastor Tom tells us to do in this church, that if you have a if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother. Not that those people necessarily sinned against me, but it was the principle. We had a Matthew 18 conversation. We had conversations to clear the air, to, to try to work things out. And with some of them, it worked out. With some of them, I got chewed out. With some of them, I got bulldozed. But I was obedient. And that is what reconciliation is. With some of them, the wedge was removed. With some of them, we were enemies but we came away friends. With some of them, I'm better friends now because of the journey that we went on. But reconciliation is when the enmity is broken down and then there's now relationship and fellowship. And it's only through Jesus that we can be reconciled back to God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way for us to be reconciled. Serving in the food pantry won't make you right with God. Going to church won't make you right with God. Putting money in the offering box won't make you right with God. It's through repenting from your sin, believing that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was crucified on the cross, taking our sins. He was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven, that he paid for our sin, one sacrifice for all sin for all time. It takes faith in this. The third part of that Romans road is Romans 10.10, 10, that if you confess with your mouth, O Lord Jesus, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That is what can make you right with God. Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus and Jesus alone. I spent many years going to church growing up, and I was not right with God. I was not right with God until I found Jesus. So let's look at a couple other, excuse me, actually I think for the sake of time I'm going to, let me choose one. Let's look at Colossians 1, you can turn with me to Colossians 1, um, beginning with verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God, this is referring to Jesus, was pleased to dwell and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things, I'm sorry, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the scripture we started with. But he has reconciled us. We are no longer enemies. The, the enmity has been abolished. And not only has the enmity been abolished. We're now friends. I was looking on the internet, and I don't have time to read it, but about a Christmas truce during World War I where the German troops and the British troops, beginning on Christmas Eve, they sang carols to each other. There was a truce between them. The war was paused, and there was a truce. But that truce was only temporary. Our truce with God is permanent. We are no longer enemies. But even better than that, we're friends. We are now friends. And Jesus said in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So we can now be, like Abraham, friends of God. We're friends with God. Not enemies, but friends. And that is part of our identity in Christ. It's who we are. We're no longer enemies of God, but we're his friends. So let's look at um, justification. Greg, can you advance my slide? Thank you. The courtroom. The sinner stands before God accused and guilty. 
but God declares the sinner righteous. For me, before I came to know Jesus, I was a hellion. I was rebellious. I cussed people out. I was a shoplifter. I was a drinker. I did drugs. I slept around. I was a wild woman. I was not an example. I was a hypocrite, too, because I went to church, led my church youth group, did all of those things while attending church and acting like I was, you know, Miss Goody Two-Shoes. But I was, I was two-sided. I had the let me please everybody and make everybody happy and let me search for love in all the wrong places. And that's really what I was doing was searching for love and acceptance is what I was doing. But I had a deep, deep, deep sin problem. And the enemy would accuse me and he was right. All those things he said about me, you're dirty, you're nasty, you're filthy, nobody would ever want you. They were kind of true at that point in my life because there was nothing um, attractive about the way I was living and who I was as a person. And we all have areas in our life, past and present, that are not pure and are not holy. You know, recently I I prayed for a young woman that um, asked me to pray about lust. I never would have thought that, that she struggled with that. But we all have areas in our minds that, that you can't see, we can't see on the outside, but we struggle with sin. We struggle. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. What he did. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. We're trying to earn that salvation when it's a free gift. Yeah, thank you. That's good. That's good. So some of this material that I'm going to use on justification... I will confess, I googled Bible verses on justification in the first article that looked really good. I took those Bible verses. And he had some good words too, some good um, phrasing. So his name was Leon Morris. But he says, justification is a legal term, thus the metaphor is the courtroom. It's declaring a a person to be just or righteous. We know that God is a God of justice. Genesis 18.25 says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal right, deal justly? So the question we might wonder is, well, how can a sinful people be just or justified before a holy God? And as Miss Renee was saying, sinful people, we can't do anything to be declared righteous before God, to be righteous before God. It's just spinning our wheels And I I don't know how many times I said, God, if you'll just get me out of this, (laughs) this one time, I promise I'll turn my life around. And then six weeks later, I'd be praying that same prayer again. But let's look at this. I think that this is going to change your um, perception of what justification means. The Greek verb translated to justify means to declare righteous. When the word is applied to believers, it does not, I'm going to add only mean made righteous, but it means declared righteous. Because there are some scriptures where it's translated made righteous. I don't want to confuse us. But it literally means to be declared righteous or shown to be in the right. So we have been doing some remodeling, and we had a homeschool room that was the room over our garage. and We've been cleaning it out getting rid of old school papers and construction paper and liter-sized jars of Elmer's glue. And then a lot of the kids' artwork was in there. This was a hot dog and Coke that Greg made out of clay many, many years ago. And so it was the choice. Do we keep it or do we throw it away? And, And I have other things that Greg made. I just could not let this go because to me, this is beautiful. In my eyes, I declare 
this is beautiful. This has great value to me. It wasn't necessarily made the most beautiful because it's clay, but in my eyes, in my estimation, (laughs) it's beautiful. So, Greg, do you know? Do you know how old you were when you made the hot dog? No. Probably at least 10 years ago. So let's look at some scriptures on justification. And I didn't have room to put all of Romans 5, but I would recommend read all of Romans 5. I think we're going to hit some of it. But Romans 5.19, Just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. I love that. Romans 5 presents the doctrine of justification by faith. The saved are not saved because of their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness that is from God, which we receive by faith. And I just love, not that I love it, but here's a good analogy, and it's it's pretty much straight out of Romans 5.19. One person disobeyed, and we were all made sinners, but one person chose to obey. Jesus had a choice. He had a choice, but he said, not my will, but yours be done. He had a choice. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He chose, and through that one choice, many were made righteous. Galatians 2.16 Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So there wasn't, there wasn't anything we could do, there isn't anything we could do to be declared righteous in the presence of a holy God. Justified, we are justified The enemy is going to remind you of all your mistakes all day long. But God declares us righteous because of the blood of Jesus through faith. There are a lot of different ways when you study the cross-references that it says it's the how. How are we justified? And I'm going to hit just a few of those. So the first one, by his grace. I've given you some cross-references. I'm I'm not going to hit all of them. But Romans 3.24 being justified as a gift by his grace. And again, Titus 3, 7, being justified by his grace. The second one is through redemption. Again, that's Romans 3, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. So through being bought back from that slave market. Through faith or through belief, Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There are a whole lot of other scriptures about being justified by faith. I liked um, Acts 13.39 in the New Living Translation. It says, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, is declared right with God something the law of Moses could never do. The fourth one is by his blood. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then the last one is in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So, Greg, the next slide, please. please. So, how are we justified? By his grace, through redemption, through faith, by his blood, in the name of Jesus. That is how we are justified. None of that is anything that we could do. This is all what God did, that free gift of grace. It is what Jesus did when he bought us back by his blood. 
Now, what we have to do is through faith. That's our part, (laughs) is through faith. We have to believe in what Jesus did for us and accept it. We have to accept salvation through faith. It's in the name of Jesus. So just sit for just a minute and just think about just being, just enter into the presence of God. And know that in the presence of God, as we're covered by the blood of Jesus, he says, you are righteous. You've been made righteous. I declare you are righteous. I declare you are righteous. He speaks forth what we're going to be. <laughs> we may not feel it now. I've got another, I've got another quote Justification declares us to be righteous, but sanctification makes us righteous. Walking out day by day with Jesus is how in this physical body we are being made righteous, but in God's presence, he already sees us as righteous. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, I do, I do, I do. Right, I think for me, um, I had a good daddy. I had a great daddy. The worst thing he ever said to me was, I'm disappointed in you, baby. That's the worst thing he ever said to me. And so for me, I don't struggle with seeing God as a good God who loves me. And so I believe that that something I walk in is just, receiving God's love and believing it I believe he loves me and and afterwards I can pray for you and I pray for people and I impart the ability to receive his love in that way but God gave me a daddy that loved me and so even though my dad sees his own imperfections I just see a daddy that loved me so that I think, you know, even I've named some of the things I did, and the list gets a whole lot worse the more if <laughs> we sat and talked personally. But it's... Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I, th- I think it really comes to down to the f- a father, um, because even before I married Brian, I had mostly made peace that I was pure and holy again, you know, because it took, it took a few years to get rid of the old Lisa and to quit doing what Lisa did and to feel pure and holy, but um, I really think having a father that loves you makes it easier to believe that there's a God that loves you because that was the example of fatherhood that you had. So I think that that's a gift that I have um, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. But I've got a video at the end I think that's going to help you. So justification declares us to be righteous. So let's go on to adoption. This is the last metaphor, Greg, if you'll... Um, Move it for me. Yeah, that's the quote. Justification declares us to be righteous. Sanctification makes us righteous. Okay, go ahead, Gregory. The next one. Adoption, the home. The sinner stands before God a stranger. God makes the sinner a member of his family. I don't know about you, but if a sinner came and knocked on my door and they were a stranger, I don't know that I would necessarily welcome them in and and adopt them as my own. Greg, the next slide, please. 
I have a friend named Heather Arnold. She um, and her husband were pastors at this church for many, many years. They have three biological children, and I always have to do the math, seven. Is that right, Greg? No, eight adopted children. Eight adopted children, one from Guatemala, one from Ethiopia, two from Ukraine, and four from the Philippines. That woman knows about adoption, and she amazes me. Ephesians 1.5 says, God, he's referring to God, predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. I do teach out of the New American Standard Version because it, it makes it easier for me to do word studies. The language can be a little cumbersome, but that part where it says according to the kind intention of his will, it really means because it made him happy. <laughs> because it made him happy. It was his delight. It was his pleasure. He predestined us to adoption because it made it, him happy. Warren Wearsby, the commentator, says, The Roman judicial system recognized an adopted child as a new person. All of your debt and obligations from your former life were wiped out. As an adopted child of God, you have a fresh start, a new beginning, a totally new life. And I liked what William Barclay said. It said, The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all rights in his old family. You get that? <laughs> the, the rights to your old family, the things that you naturally inherit, you don't inherit. Do you catch that? There are things that are generational in our family. For you, it might be cancer. It might be divorce. It might be addiction. It might be adultery. It might be poverty, but that is not your inheritance in Christ. You have lost the right to all of those things that were part of your physical, natural, earthly family. There are times when I've um, struggled with things in my body, and I've had to say, that's not my inheritance. That's not mine. That is not what I inherit in Christ. I have lost all the rights to that because I'm now a child of God with a new inheritance. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. So a couple other cross-references. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then Galatians 4.4-5, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then Pastor Tom kind of stole part of my message on Sunday when he was going into some of this from Romans 8. And I'll just read part of verse 15. It says, We have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And verse 17 says, if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So our inheritance, and I don't have time to go into inheritance, but we inherit eternal life. We inherit being able to be in God's presence. We inherit life now. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. So we don't inherit all those things that are... Um, genealogy says we should inherit or all the DNA testing or the, the um, family illnesses, the medical history. That's not our inheritance. Our inheritance is a sound mind, healthy marriages, not being addicted, walking in health, walking in freedom, walking in wholeness, walking in peace. That is what we inherit. So I'm going to, as Pastor Tom would say, land this plane and then I'm going to show you a video to wrap it up. So on your handout is a good summary of soteriology, the study of salvation. And again, there are so many other facets we could look at. We've just looked at five. Titus 3, 5 through 8, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Um, next slide, Gregory. Oh, that was it. Go one more. Okay, so hopefully now you have mental pictures of what these five metaphors are. Forgiveness, the bank. Someone paid a debt for us that we could not pay. Redemption is the marketplace. We were slaves to sin, but through the blood of Jesus taking our place, he bought us back and gave us freedom. Reconciliation is the battlefield. We were enemies to God. Enemies, is that right? Enemies with God because of our sin problem. But because of the death of Jesus, we are now not just not enemies or allies, but we're friends. We're friends. Justification, the courtroom. Even though we deserve to hear you dirty, rotten sinner, you blank, blank, and blank, we hear you are righteous. I declare that you are righteous by the blood of Jesus. Adoption, the home, even though we were strangers to God, sinners, ungodly, unholy, he welcomes us into his family, declares us with, as children, and we get all the rights that children receive. Last slide, Gregory. Formerly, we were debtors, slaves to sin, enemies of God, sinful, and orphans. But now, who are we? We are forgiven. We are freed from the slavery of sin. We are friends of God. We are declared righteous. We are children of God. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that you took all of our sins on the cross. You were the one sacrifice for all of our sin for all time. Jesus, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is working within us, that we aren't slaves to sin. We are sometimes prone to it, but your Holy Spirit is teaching us how to walk out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is always at work in us to make us willing and able to obey his own purpose. We thank you that we are not who we were. We may have a temporary experience, but that is not who we are. We are the righteousness of God through faith. We just thank you tonight for all of your gifts, for your grace, for your blood, for redemption.